You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so for the rest of our morning, we're going to take commandment number five. We're going to spin it around and look at it from, the diff- from another angle. So two weeks ago, we looked at it from the angle of those who are under authority. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother in terms of being a child or being an employee in, a, in an organization or being a citizen in a country, you know, country with government officials, or being a member of a church with leaders you're called to submit to. What, we, we looked at it from that angle, uh, from that perspective of what does it mean to look up to authority and to honor them in appropriate ways. What, what does that mean? Now, this morning, we're going to spin it around and not look at it from the angle of those under authority, but for, from the angle of those who are in authority. That the broad application of this command should go in both of those two directions. For those under authority, what does it mean to honor our our authority in our life? But for those in authority, what does it mean to become honorable authority? Like this command is is looking at all of those in, in authority. And there's such wide application of that in the room. Everything from you have some direct reports at your workplace that they're looking at you, you're making calls about how they do their work. Everything from that to if you're a government official, to if you're a husband, to if you're a parent, it's all of, to if you're church leaders, all of that, that set of people that are in authority, God is looking at with this command and saying, it's your job to become honorable authority that people should submit to. That it goes well for them when they submit to you. Now, just to give some credence to looking at this command this way, um, Ephesians 6 helps us in this. So in Ephesians 6, Paul is talking about the fifth commandment. The basis for what he's saying as he starts out Ephesians 6 is the fifth commandment. So he starts by talking to children. In Ephesians 6 verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's a direct reflection of the fifth commandment, of honor your father and your mother. He goes on to add a couple of things, for this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and and that you may live long in the land. So that is all on the side of for those who are under authority. This command applies to you. But he doesn't leave the expedition of this command there with those under authority. Verse 4 says this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, it's not just for those under authority, this fifth commandment. It's for those, you know, in authority. And if you just kind of keep reading in Ephesians 6, you see him do the same thing when when he talks about masters and their servants. He doesn't just address servants and how they're going to honor the authority of their master in their life. He also addresses masters and, and reacquainting masters with, there's going to be a day when you stand before God for how you treat those under your authority. So, so I wanted to spend some time this morning thinking through with you, what does it mean to be honorable authority? Now, if we had like an extended set of sermons on this, I would love to tackle in your workplace, what does that mean for church leaders, among other things, Um, But the context of this commandment and Ephesians 6 is going to press us primarily applying it to that of parents. What does it mean for parents to be honorable authority? If God is looking at your kids and saying, you need to submit to their authority. You need to obey their authority. You need to honor your father and your mother. What does it look like for us to grow into being honorable authority? And parents, if, if in your mind that means you make sure your kids memorize Ephesians 6, right, and the fifth commandment, They've got that thing in their back pocket at all times, so you can kind of slam that down on them. We've got problems, right? Every time I read passages that deal with someone is supposed to submit to me, that sends like a 
shockwave through me. That, I mean, that, that should lay us low knowing that God is looking at us saying, if I'm calling people to submit to you, that means you're held to a special sort of accountability when all accounts are settled. So we need to spend some time thinking through what does it mean to be honorable authority? What is this role of parents and how do we walk in that role well? So I want to think through a couple of different kind of things with you in terms of what does it mean to be honorable authority? Here's the first one. We're going to look at four or five things here this morning. Here's, here's the first one. To be honorable authority as a parent, here's the first thing that I think has to be settled in our mind. And the reason I want to just highlight this for a moment is because the cultural mood so presses against this. But, but here's the first thing that's got to be firm in us, is that children are a blessing. I'm going to say that one more time. Like in God's economy, children are a blessing. Now the prevailing mood of the culture that you and I find ourselves in is that children are not a blessing. We do not live in an overly friendly environment to kids. Let me, and we could talk about this from a lot of different angles. Let me just give you one angle for this. In the 1950s, the fertility rate, now that, that's the equation for how many children does each woman produce or have? That's the fertility rate. How many children per woman? In the 1950s, the fertility rate in America uh, was 3.8 children per woman. Okay, that was the fertility rate in 1950. Now fast forward 60 years, and here's what's happened to the fertility rate. It has gone to being less than two children per woman. That's a record low. Now when you get to a birth rate that is two or below, that means that a population no longer is replacing itself. That if that prevailing mood continues in, in our culture, that our population in America is going to continue to go like this. That you don't replace yourself when it's below two. Now, do you know what's ironic? Do you know um, a, a couple of places where the prevailing mood is not th this unfriendly toward children? Among Mormons and among Muslims. And ironically, those two um, ways of approaching God that we would all look at and say, that is not good ways of approaching God. That will get you nowhere in your approach to God. Those two ways of approaching God are growing. And one of the main reasons is because their, their kind of general view of kids is much more positive. How many kids are we going to have? It's much more positive than the normal evangelical Christian view of that. The prevailing mood in our culture is to see kids as inconveniences. Something we've got to kind of endure so that one day we can get them out of our house and actually do what we want to do with our lives. And that is not the way God views kids. Now you see this throughout the Bible, and maybe it's a place to start would be Genesis 1 and 2. When God creates us, some of the first words he says to our first parents goes like this. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Now, that is not a command from God. That is a blessing from God. That is under the category of blessing. God is looking at us and saying, children are going to be a blessing to you. They're going to be one of the many ways that I pour out grace upon grace among you. Now, let me give you another one here. This is Psalms 127, verses 3, 4, and 5. This will be on the screen for you. Listen to how the psalmist talks about children. It says it this way. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, the fruit of the, of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. So are you just seeing kind of the mood of, of how the Bible and how God in particular looks at children? 
And, and here's what I'm just trying to get you to do here this morning. is just to, to test yourself. Do you look at children like the Bible looks at children? Is the way that God thinks about kids the way you think about kids? Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everyone in here should have like 15 kids. That's not the point. I, I think there, there's some of us in here who should have more than we do have. But, but the main point I'm trying to get at is, is, is your view of kids, like the undergirding kind of reasons that you have this many kids as opposed to that many kids, is the undergirding reason behind that. Is it align with, with how God views kids? And, and here's the, the end kind of point in that. If it doesn't, this would be a great moment to repent of that. To, to, to forsake your old way of seeing and to take on God's way of seeing. To rethink your life, to rethink how you think so that you're aligning with how God thinks about these things. Now, before we move on, I think it's worth just settling here for just a moment. Is that the Bible calls us God's kids. And, and I just want to just... Re, just remind you of this this morning. If, if you're one of God's kids, God does not view you as an inconvenience. He doesn't view you as a burden this morning. That if you're one of God's kids, God is looking at you right now, regardless of the mess you're in in your life, regardless of how disorganized and dysfunctional you are right now. God looks at you right now and says, I love you. You're a blessing to me. You're not a burden to me. You're a blessing to me. I mean, I hope that some of us would just feel that deep in our bones. That we would just hear the voice of God this morning say to us, you are a blessing to me. I love you. Not an inconvenience. I, I want you enough to send my son to slaughter him on a cross to gain you. You're that much of a blessing to me. So children are a blessing. Here's the second thing is the primary way you bless your children is by prioritizing your marriage. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but I just want to make this point briefly. The number one way you bless your kids is by blessing them by prioritizing your marriage in your home. Ephesians 6.4 wasn't written in a vacuum. It was written right after Ephesians 5, where Paul, in very articulate, clear ways, says, Wives, this is your role in the home. This is what it means for you to love God in the way that you would treat your husband. Husbands, this is your role in the home. This is what it means for you to love God as you love and lead your wife. So it's just coming on the hills of that. It's just coming on the hills of Paul saying, you are one flesh with this woman or with this man, your, your husband or your wife. This is, this is the priority. In the home, Paul is, is essentially saying this in Ephesians 5 and 6. In the home, Jesus is the most important person. Our homes are to center around Jesus. They're to orbit around Jesus. Our home, we're to all work really hard in putting into our home kind of some gospel air. We're talk about God, pursuing God. All of these things are normal in the context of our home. Jesus is the most important relationship in the home. Now behind Jesus, Paul is clarifying that your marriage is the second most important earthly relationship. That, that if you're a dad in your home, Paul is saying this, the priorities are clear. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's the next thing you do. You lay your life down for your wife. That's the next thing. Then we get to kids. And then he's looking at our ladies and he's saying, ladies, let, let's make this really clear. Here's the number one priority in your life. It's to love God with everything in you. That's number one. And this can be really hard for ladies. This runs really deep in ladies. Number two is to love your husband. That's the second most important relationship. Not your kids, but your husband. Kids come behind your husband. 
He's clarifying that, that you're not one flesh with your kids. You're not joined in that sort of way with your kids. You're joined in that sort of a way with your spouse. That's the second most important relationship in the life of a married man or a married woman, your, your marriage, your spouse. Now, here's the thing about kids. They have a way of naturally pulling that, that priority of a marriage apart. Not intentionally. They're not, they're not setting out to say, I want to become more important to my mom than, than my dad. That's not how it goes. But what kids naturally have a tendency to do is to put a, a rope around mama's leg and a rope around daddy's leg. And over time, that just the gravity that they're going to you know, insert into that relationship is going to pull mom and dad apart and, and try to get mom and dad to prioritize them in that relationship. That's part of just how their own sinfulness works itself out in a home. And dads and moms, listen to this. If you're not careful in pulling against that rope, that will happen to you. This is the reason that so many couples, when they're 50 and their you know, kids fly the coop and they're out of their home, they wake up trying to figure out who is this person I'm living with now. Because they've totally prioritized the wrong relationships. So parents, I want to say this just as clearly as I can. The number one way you can bless your kids the most important thing you can do is by prioritizing your marriage, by putting your marriage above your kids, by, by you prioritizing, we are going to have a great marriage. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to run after this woman if you're the man, or, th or this man if you're the, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to keep that relationship strong. That's the number one way you can bless your kiddos. Number three, so number one, children are a blessing. Number two, you bless your children by prioritizing your marriage. And number three, your children are your responsibility. They are your responsibility. <clears throat> do, do you remember that, that first kind of baby, if you've had kids, that first delivery room experience? Is that not the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> that, that is the craziest scene I've ever been in, in 30 some odd years of living. That, that's, that ranks at the top of, the wildest things I've ever seen go down in my life. Now, I, and I just remember some of the things that stuck out to me as crazy kind of throughout that little time period of, of having our first kiddo, Hannah. Um, one of those was trying to figure out how something the size of a football is going to run that route. You know what I'm saying? How, I'm, I'm looking at the doctor like, should we be calling audibles? So this, how is this going to work? So that, that's the first thing. Second thing is like Hannah... You know, we had a baby, there's Hannah, and they handed that little baby to me. I'm like, do you know who I am? Are you sure this is a good idea? But, but here's the most shocking thing of, of the whole delivery room experience. Is a day and a half later, they send that little baby home with you. There's no instruction manual, you know, tied to the toe of that little baby. I, most things like this, you have like years of like work to get ready for that. But parenting is like, man, it just happens and they send you home a day and a half later with a baby and you just have to kind of figure it out. Now, to that sort of ambiguity, and, and if, man, I think you would be dishonest if when you came home the first time you weren't feeling that same thing. Just the ambiguity of how in the world am I going to raise a, a kid? How is this going to happen? Now, into that sort of ambiguity, Paul inserts some help. Ephesians 6.4 is the help. Fathers, and we would just generally apply this to parents. Parents, 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The big idea is that it's your responsibility as parents to bring them up. That's the big idea, to bring them up. Aren't we grateful that kids aren't born full grown? They would be monsters, wouldn't they? I mean, I have a three-year-old in my house that if she was already like as strong and as like as mature as an older adult, there is a great chance I would be buried in my backyard somewhere. <laughs> I'm just it would it would not be good. And it, now, when we look at our kids, we would all agree that there is a bringing up that needs to happen, wouldn't we? That, that they, when they come out of the womb, they are not ready to be on their own yet. And Paul is looking at us saying, this is your job as parents to bring them up. They're your responsibility. God is looking at you as a parent and saying, I am blessing you with this wonderful opportunity. And here's the opportunity. You're going to have this little baby that's going to be born to you. I'm going to give them you as a little gift. You're going to be the steward of this little baby. And I'm going to charge you with the job of bringing them up in the Lord. That's going to be your role. Now, Paul gives two main ways this bringing up happens. Two main ways. One is instruction. You bring them up in the, in the instruction of the Lord. In the instruction. Now, if you just picture a little baby, newborn baby, been in Shannarite, we showed them earlier, just had a little newborn. If you just picture that little baby, a couple of weeks old. Now, fast forward 20 years, and you're to the moment where you're looking at your little baby, and you're saying, okay, go make a life of your own now. Go for it. Go get it. We would all agree that there is a lot that needs to be, like a lot of instruction that needs to happen between that two-week-old baby and that 20-year-old boy or girl that you have. Wouldn't we agree with that? There is a lot of instruction that has to take place there. There is a lot of training that has to take place there. There is a lot of wisdom that has to be gained there. There's a lot of maturity that has to be gained there. And Paul is saying, in light of that, here's what you get to do as a parent. This is one of the ways you bring them up, is you instruct your kids. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives a little of the substance behind this. This is how Deuteronomy chapter 6 says it. When it comes to instruction... Here's the way it kind of lays it out here. And by the way, let me just separate instruction into two categories. There's obviously a ton of overlap. I mean, if we pressed it far enough, we would see that all of these things are interrelated. But let me just put them in two categories here. We, we might could call one spiritual or theological instruction. This would be like instruction about who God is, what the good news of Jesus is, how that permeates every area of your life. There's that, and there's going to be wisdom sort of instruction. So let me just start on the spiritual side of this, the theological equipping and developing of your family. Deuteronomy 6 says it like this, starting in verse 5, it says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In other words, he's looking at parents saying, the most important thing you can do as a parent is to love Jesus. It doesn't get more fundamental to parenting than this. I actually have a deep abiding love of Jesus. Then he goes on to say, verse 7, after he emphasizes, love Jesus. Like love God with everything in you, nothing held back. He says, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. In other words, possessing a love for God isn't the end of parenting, it's the beginning. Possessing a love of God is where it starts, but what we possess, we're, we're charged by God to pass along to our kids. What, what you possess, God is looking at you here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 and saying, now pass along what you possess. 
Don't just keep that in. You pass these things along to your kids. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So when it comes to instruction, I think there's two kind of ways that this plays out. There's a formal instruction, like we need to sit down and nail these things down. We need to actually like proactively think about these things. Uh, we, we talk a ton about the New City Catechism about, for that. It is such a silver platter. It's right in front of you. It's such an easy tool to use with your kids to proactively and formally teach them good theology about God, about Jesus, about the good news of the gospel. There's such a great job in that. This is where our scripture memory stuff plays in. This is where our Bible reading stuff plays in. It's taking those sort of formal moments to set down for the discipleship and instruction of your kids. So there's that sort of a formal approach to it, but there's also an informal approach to it. And, and you see both of those here. You see that the sitting down and we're doing it formally, and then you see it as you're just walking on the way. As you're just doing life together, you're talking about things and relating all of these things back to the good news of Jesus. So I'll just give you a for instance about how this has worked for me lately. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Caleb and I were leaving church. It was about two o'clock. We were, we were coming home that afternoon and there's an empty lot in our neighborhood. And there's birds all in this empty lot. They're just everywhere. So we stopped the car and we started counting the birds. And at the end of that, I asked Caleb, Caleb, do you know what the Bible and, and what God would want you to think every time you see a bird? I, for the rest of your life, every time you see a bird, do you know what the Bible would want you to think? Here's how Jesus says it. If, if, if birds don't sow or reap or store stuff in barns and yet they have food, like your heavenly father would feed them like that, how much more would he feed you, one of his sons? For the rest of your life, every time you see a bird, you're, you're supposed to think, if God would feed them and care for them, how much more would he care for you? See, it's just an on-the-way sort of training. It's on the way as you're going. Life is happening. Things are happening. And you're just relating things back to God. This is what instruction looks like. It's both that formal dimension of you proactively doing it, and it's that informal sort of reactive way of just life is happening and you're teaching your kids about God everywhere you go, about Jesus everywhere you go, about the good news of Jesus in every little moment of their life. So you, you've got this proactive and this reactive, this formal and this informal way of instructing your kids in things that are theological in nature. The good news of, of, of the gospel. So now think about this in your life right now. Are, is that happening in your home? One of my pastor friends, he says it this way. He says, and I think this is a really good way to think about this question here. He says, take away all other input into your kid's life. What would they know about God from your lips and your life? And what Deuteronomy 6 is saying, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6, is they should know everything they need to know about God, about the good news of Jesus. They should know everything they need to know about your life and lips as a mom and a dad. That's the point. Now, here's the thing. If you're not proactively doing that, do you know what you are by nature saying? You may not be saying this verbally, but you know what you're saying by your actions? Is it someone else's job to do that? And listen, as, as a church family, we want to do everything to partner with you in the discipleship of your kids. But it is not our primary role. It's your primary role. We'll partner with you, but you are always the primary role in the discipleship of your family. It's always you. When, when God comes along to ask the first question about the discipleship of your kids, he's not going to ask me that question for your kids. The first question is going to be to you for your kids. That it's your role. And listen, 
That's not a burden, right? This is God blessing you. He's saying, let me give you one of the most precious little things that I can, a little baby. And I'm going to allow you this beautiful opportunity to bring them up, to instruct them in the things they need to know about me. That is a blessing from God for us as parents, isn't it? So there's those theological components to, to bringing them up and instructing them. And there's the wisdom components of just things that if your kids are going to do well in life, in, you know, just in the culture that we live in, things that you're going to have to be very proactive about discipling them toward. Things like money. That's one of them. If your kids don't know how to deal with money, chances are they're going to be a train wreck for a lot of their life. They're just going to run into one thing after another and wonder why, why does why is life just not working very well? So you're going to have to teach them about money. You're going to have to teach them about conflict resolution. How, how do you do conflict well? You're going to have to teach them about their sexuality. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? You're going to have to teach them about how to relate to the opposite gender. Now, here's the thing. Now, just feel this deep in your bones if you're a parent, and especially if you still have kids in your home. If you're not discipling them like that, someone is. And do you know who that someone is? Our culture. See, when, when you pull back from your role of discipling them, it doesn't mean that no one's discipling them. It just means you're saying, culture, why don't you teach them these things? And can we all agree we don't want culture teaching our kids sexuality, how to relate to the opposite gender, how to do conflict, how to do, how to do anything in life. We do not want the culture teaching that. This is your job that God is specifically blessing you with as a parent to, to bring your kids up with this sort of instruction. So instruction is one side of this, of what it means to bring up. And then he uses another word, discipline. It's instruction and discipline. When it comes to discipline, I think it's really important that parents connect this to the larger issue of what's happening. Like, why is it that God looks at parents and, and says, you need to be very proactive and stay on top of the discipline of your kids. Why is that? Answer. Learning to follow parents is the way children learn to follow God. Learning to joyfully and immediately follow the instruction of parents is the way kids learn how to joyfully and immediately follow the instruction of God later on in their life. Now, do you see what that's connected to? See, when we're lax or lazy as parents... And I think for most of us, that's the reason that we don't do a very good job of discipline. It's just hard. It's time-consuming. It's, it's you getting off the couch again to go say what you've said a million times before, right? It's just hard and time-consuming. And what keeps a lot of us from that is just laziness. But I want you to see what this is connected to. You getting off the couch and doing this is helping your kids one day down the road when the authority transfers from you to God in their life, it's helping them see what does it look like to immediately and joyfully follow a good God who loves me and cares for me. There is a lot at stake with the way that we, we discipline. Now listen, this is not going to be a sermon on the technique of discipline. That is a whole other conversation for another time. The only point I'm trying to make is this. If you have kids in your home, you better stay on top of that. And you better start when they're young. You try to spank a 20-year-old, you just broke your hand and they're laughing at you, right? Just does not work well. You need to start young on that. I mean, there's a reason that the Proverbs tell us to train a kid in the way he should go. And the reason is because if you leave a kid to go whatever way he wants to go, that's going to be a train wreck. That you've been providentially put in their life to discipline them. To, to say, not this way, but that way. This is not good for you. This is good for you. So parents, I just want to plead with you. 
Do the hard work of staying on that. Don't be lackadaisical or lazy in this area. Now, I want to say just a brief word really quickly to to parents of aging kids. Brief word. If you've got older kids, like they're out of the home, that sort of thing, just a brief word. I want to look at this from the parent's perspective really quick from kind of that age dynamic as as kids grow up in the home. And I want to give you some categories to think about how your parenting should shift as your kids get older. Let me just give you these three categories. There's a lot more we could say. I just want to introduce you to these and let you think about this. I think this will be helpful for some of us in the room. When your kids are really young in the home, I think the best way to think about your parenting is the word caregiver. So that, that involves a lot of directive sort of involvement with your kids. A lot of verbally directive moments, a lot of physically directive moments. It, it involves a lot of hands-on, don't do that, you're doing this sort of moments. So caregiver when, when they're young. That is implying that kids, when they're very young, need a lot of that sort of attention. It's that sort of a very high-maintenance parenting when it comes to that. Um, As your kids age into their adolescent teenage years, it goes from caregiver to counselor. Now, what I hope you're seeing with the word counselor is, it's not quite as directive. There's going to be directive moments in your parenting where you still have to say, not this, but that. Even maybe physically, not this, is but that's. Right? There's going to be some of those in there, but the flavor of the relationship is turning to where you're entrusting with more responsibility than you're processing how they handle that to try to build in them a sense of how do you handle responsibility. So it goes from caregiver to counselor. The flavor kind of changes in those adolescent and teenage years. Then when they get out of your home, and this is a hard transition for parents to make, and it's the one I want to just highlight for just a moment here. It goes to consultant. If you try to stay in counselor role when your kids get out of the home, like they're financially independent, they're married, if you try to stay in counselor or caregiver role when they're, when they're on their own, this is why we have all the terrible in-law stories, right? This is the reason, because that transition is hard to make, to consultant. Now, here's the defining thing about a consultant. Almost all of the input you give as a consultant is after you have been asked to give it, Right? not before you've been asked. And that's a really, really hard thing for a parent to do. Now, if you see a train wreck coming as a parent, you should step into that. But generally speaking, your your advice now, your instruction now comes after it's been asked for, not before it. That's a really hard thing for parents to get a hold of and one that we all have to come to grips with as our parents or as our kiddos age. Fourthly and finally, when it comes to parenting and being honorable authority, We have to watch for ways of provoking our kids. This is the first thing Paul says in this, you know, in Ephesians 6. It's do not provoke your children to anger. Paul is very aware of the tendency in a home when you live with somebody for the long haul for relationships because of sin to dissolve into bitterness and anger. In your marriage, it can do that. With your kids, it can do that. He's really aware of that. And he's trying to get in front of that to, to, to put a roadblock in front of that, to make sure parents are aware of that tendency. That if left to yourself in your home, left, your kids left to themselves, you left to yourself as their parent, left to yourself, sin is going to dissolve everything into anger and bitterness. I, and, and some of us know that really intimately. For, for many in the room, your deepest wounds in your life have come at the hands of your mom and dad. And Paul knows that that tendency is there. And he's trying to do everything he can to get in front of that. Now, just to clarify, he is not saying that you should never provoke your kids. 
when your kid's heart is set on treason, and that's how every kid is born, there's going to be moments where you have to provoke that. What Paul is saying is you should not unnecessarily provoke that. That that sin in you should not be the means of stirring up the sin in your kids. So that's what he's trying to address here. So I want to finish up here by giving a few ways that parents oftentimes provoke their kids. I'm just going to run through these as quickly as I can here. Ways that parents have a tendency to provoke their kids. Here's the first one. Number one is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. When your kids see you carry a Bible into church with you, listen to the same sermons they're listening to, worship and sing the same songs that they're singing, and then they watch you go home and have absolutely no intention of having that sermon, the good news of Jesus, influence the way you live and affect the way you live, that does something to your kids. Over the long haul, that is going to provoke your kids to anger. Not only is that going to cause them to dismiss you and become angry at you, it's also going to cause them to become angry toward the church. And so parents, now hear this. In saying that, it doesn't mean that your kids need perfect parents. That is not the, the point of that. In saying that, it, it, I'm trying to get at this point. It means that your kids need repenting parents. Parents who are aware of their sin, repenting of their sin, thinking rightly about life now in light of what God says about their sin. That your, your kids need repenting parents. When there is something that goes off in you, that you are quick to repent of those things. So hypocrisy is one of those ways we provoke our kids to anger. Here's the second way, is overprotecting our kids. Okay, so protecting your, your kids is one of your responsibilities. It's just not your main responsibility as a parent. It's one of them, just not the central one. Our primary responsibility as a parent is to prepare our children to meet Jesus one day. That's the number one kind of job as a parent. It's preparation, not protection. Protection's in there, it's just not primary. I, part of what your kids are going to need from you is the freedom to fail along the way. The freedom to learn what it looks like to fight sin, to fight the world, to fight the devil with you. So it means you can't overprotect them. If you, you can underprotect your kids, that's definitely a danger. But you can overprotect your kids. And if you consistently overprotect your kids, there will be a day where that provokes your kids to anger. Here's the third one, is overexpecting. There is definitely a way that you can underexpect from your kids. They're going to love you and all the while be really lazy, right? There's a way that you can underexpect. But there is also a way, and I think this is most prevalent in our competitive parenting kind of culture, there is a way that you can over-expect from your kids. Like your kids are kids, right? And it's not right to act like a six-year-old should, should act like a 36-year-old. They're, they're not wise yet. They're growing in wisdom. They're not mature yet. They're growing in maturity. So as parents, we've got to make sure that we are parenting with the sort of grace and patience that realizes they are teenagers. They are 10. They are 6, not 36. That we're parenting with, with that in mind. And, and this would be a good thing for you to think about, many of us who are over-expecting. If you constantly over-expect from your kids, you're going to consistently under-enjoy your kids. If you over-expect from them, you're going to under-enjoy them. So just to summarize those first three, hypocrisy, hypocrisy shows your kids that what you say, not do, is primary. 
Overprotecting our kids teaches them that their preservation is primary. Overexpecting from our kids teaches them that their performance is primary. And as parents, what we're trying to say is Jesus is primary, right? He's the main thing. That's the central thing we're trying to pass along. Number four, ways we can provoke our kids is by not giving our kids a voice. Every kid in every home needs a way they can honorably disagree with you. And if you don't give them a way to honorably disagree with you, what's going to happen is they're going to do what you say and there's going to be a growing contempt for you. Or they're going to disagree with you in a very dishonorable way. So what we call this in our home is just you can make a godly appeal. If you think we're not seeing everything we need to see, if you think we're idiots, if you think we're not being wise in this moment, if you think there's something we're not considering, you, you have the freedom to make a godly appeal. That means you're going to make your appeal in a godly way that would show respect to your mom and dad, but you can disagree and bring stuff in that you think we're missing in a God-honoring way. So this happened the other night. I was going, um, or Caleb and I were coming into the neighborhood. I oftentimes let him drive the last little bit into our neighborhood. He, uh, he asked me as we were driving in, Dad, can I drive the last little bit? And I said, uh, no, you can't. I'm in a hurry. You can't. And he said, Dad, you said that the last time. Could you reconsider that? <laughs> it's one of those moments where I'm like, whose idea was this godly appeal thing? <laughs> where is that person? And in that moment, I'm like, you know what, Caleb? I did say that like the last three times. So yes, you can do it. But if there's not a way for your kid to have a voice to honorably disagree with you, that's going to eventually provoke them to anger. Number five. A lack of affirmation. I'm not going to say a lot about this, but just as a parent, God has given you the gift as a parent to be the most affirming voice in the life of your kid. That does not mean you flatter them. Flattery is telling lies to your kid. It's when you know he can't hit a fastball, but you tell him he can hit a fastball. That's, that's flattery. We're not flattering them. We're affirming them. Affirming is... I'm paying attention to how God has designed you and uniquely wired you, and I'm pointing that out and applauding that, that there is something great in you, and it looks like that. And if it's hitting a fastball, great, but if it's not hitting a fastball, it's finding out what it is. So it's finding those evidences of grace in their life, evidences that God is doing something in them, and it's pointing those things out and affirming that. And just for a primer, you might just write this, this book down. I'm not going to comment on it. It's a book called Practicing Affirmation. I think parents and married spouses or friends of people would all greatly benefit from reading the book Practicing Affirmation. If you don't consistently affirm your kids, it's going to, over the long haul, provoke anger. Number six is a lack, and finally, a lack of tenderness. When Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up, that is a tender word. In Ephesians 5, it, it's the same word translated to nourish your wife. It's, there's tenderness involved in that. Now, parents, I want you to think about this for a minute. Is there tenderness involved in the way that you relate to your kids? Is there tenderness there? Is there a, uh, is there a gentleness in the way that you relate to your kids? I mean, part of what this means as, as parents is if you're, you know, if you've got a boy and he's growing up and he likes skateboarding and you have traditionally hated skateboarding, you know what it means as a dad? You probably need to buy a skateboard. And if you're a dad who can't stand chick flick sort of movies and your little girl loves Frozen 
It probably means you need to figure out what it looks like to put some popcorn in the microwave, make some hot cocoa, put it on frozen, and snuggle up on the couch. It means that you're doing whatever you can to foster that sort of tenderness in the context of, of your relationship with your kids. If not, over time, that's going to provoke anger with them. Okay, now let me just finish by, by saying this. As parents, we, to be a parent, like, we're gospel dependent, aren't we? We need Jesus. You need Jesus. See, it's ironic that the same problem you're dealing with in your kids is the same problem you're dealing with in yourself, isn't it? That we all have a major problem with sin in our life. And the Bible reaffirms from Genesis to Revelation, there is only one solution to our sin. That one solution is the person of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That we are dependent upon the good news of Jesus as parents. But it's not just parents who are gospel dependent. Parenting is gospel dependent. I mean, think about all you want for your kids. And when I think about my kids, I want them to know and love Jesus. I want their lives to look like Jesus. And do you know who is the only one who can do that for them? Jesus. That's the only one who can break through their hardness. It's the only one that can cause right behavior motivated from a right heart. It's the only one who can save them and redeem them. It's Jesus. So I want us to go ahead and respond to God right now, inviting Jesus in both to our life and our parenting. So why don't you go ahead and bow with me. And this is going to be a time for us to respond to God. A time for us to ask God for help in this. And here's where it starts for all of us in the room. If you're, if you're a parent or you want to be a parent someday, if you're preparing for or hoping for or asking God to one day make you a parent. Here's where the preparation starts now if you're not yet a parent. And here's where the morning starts now for us to grow in our parenting. It starts with repentance. It starts with us asking God to show us where our own sin is blocking our ability to be honorable authority in our home. See, more than you need good technique as a parent, you need to be saved from your sin as a parent. So why don't you ask God right now, God, God where, is, where is sin blocking my ability to parent in the way that you would want me to parent? To grow as a Christian in the way that you would want me to grow. To mature in Jesus in the way that you would want me to mature. repentance is this moment of us recognizing our sin, feeling the weight of it, and turning from that sin, forsaking that sin, thinking our lives through in light of what Jesus now says about that sin and what right living would look like. And it's throwing our life on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus.
knowing that he covers all of our failures as parents. Every single failure we've ever had as a parent, Jesus covers those things. And at the same time, right now, he is empowering by his grace a new way of living as a parent. So that right now we can be thankful for grace that covers sin and hopeful that that grace will change us and make us new as we move into the future. And this is also a time to respond for those who have never trusted Jesus. See, before we'll ever be the sort of parent or person that God is asking us to be, we first have to be in the family of God as his child, with God as our father. And the Bible is really clear on what that means, what, what it requires to do that. In, in the first chapter of John, John says it like this. To all who believe in Jesus, God has given the right to become his children. So, so belief is a big word. It's, it's taking all of our sin, throwing all of our sin upon Jesus. Trusting that he has paid for our sin. And then it's taking our life and saying, God, my life is in your hands. I am all yours. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make me a child of yours. And if you have never responded to God that way, this is your morning for that. Don't walk out of here this morning without doing that. As we respond, we're going to have some guys over at the prayer table. And if you need to respond to Jesus for the first time, that would be a great place to go and verbalize that for them. They would love to pray for you and begin to walk with you down that road. And for the others in the room, there are some in this room right now who we need help personally. There are areas in our life that, that are problems right now, massive sin that we need deep repentance for. This, this is your moment for that. There's others of us in the room right now who our kids are literally just breaking our heart because they are willfully running into sin. And so as we sing and respond to the idea of God being our Father, this is going to be a time where you can respond personally in repentance and where you can intercede on behalf of your kids and those who need to return to the Lord. So Father, would you please... Would you please come into this room right now and speak, convict, encourage, comfort. Break down all of our walls, all the barriers that we have kind of put in between us and you right now. And God, will you help us all rest in right now the fact that you are a good, good daddy to us? That you're a good, good father. We are loved by you right now, regardless of our parenting blunders. We're loved by you. It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.